Isaiah chapter number 61, verse number 1, you'll remember this verse which says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good tidings, to preach good tidings, or to proclaim, or to deliver, or to bring good news. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring the good news. Now, you would agree with me, wouldn't you, that the gospel, the gospel is good news. If you think so, would you shout amen? It is. In fact, that's what the word means, of course. The word gospel means good news. But we would say the gospel is good news. In fact, why don't you uh, turn on both campuses to your neighbor. Tell them that. Just tell them the gospel. Go ahead. The gospel is good news. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, has called me, he has empowered me to proclaim good news. You know, in all of our uh, evangelism training classes, and we're, we're always training people around Brookstone to share their faith, and in all of our training classes, we teach people that we should begin every gospel conversation with the good news. Now, in sharing the good news, there is always bad news, right? Because if there's no bad news, then the good news isn't so good, right? You have to understand the bad news to really appreciate the good news. But when you're sharing the gospel with someone, you ought to begin not with the bad news, but begin with the good news. And so in our evangelism training classes, we teach people to begin with a thumbs up, right? And so hundreds of you know this already because you've been trained in evangelism uh, explosion. Uh, But we, we teach people to say, heaven is a free gift. It cannot be earned or deserve. Would you say that with me on both campuses? Say it out loud. Heaven is a free gift. It cannot be earned or deserved. See, you've just learned the first step in learning how to share your faith. And you would agree with me that this, this concept, this idea, this reality that heaven is something that is given to us is good news. And so Isaiah says in Isaiah 61, speaking in the third person speaking in the voice of the Messiah, he says in verse 1, I have come to bring good news. Now, in week number one of this brief little come and behold series, we learned that it is good news for the brokenhearted. That's verse number one of Isaiah 61. I've come to bring good news for the brokenhearted. Uh, Last week, we learned that the good news is specifically for the captive as well. Those who are in prisons, but not only prisons of steel and stone, but prisons of sin and prisons of deception and deceit and and all sorts of prisons that we erect around our lives or that others place there. It's good news for those who are in captivity. Uh, Next week, which will be the Sunday right before Christmas, I think the 22nd it will be, Um, we will be talking about the Christmas story. And so it's good news for the whole world, Luke chapter 2. That's what the angel said. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to some of the people, right? No, which shall be to how many people? All people, every nation. It's good news for everybody. So today, Isaiah 61 is going to tell us who this good news is for as well. Who is it? Well, let's read it. We'll, we'll discover it. Look at verse 1 again. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news 
unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. He has sent me to proclaim the acceptable year or the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. He has sent me to comfort all that mourn and to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion to give unto them beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord so that he might be glorified. Now, by the way, I might just stop and say, this is not the message today, but I might just stop and say that verse number three emphasizes the transformed life that we experience under the grace of God. So when the good news comes, it's not just good news, God loves me, stay in the mess I'm in. It's good news, God loves me, and he came to transform my, my life and my experience. So he wants to take me from being brokenhearted and imprisoned and mourning and grieving and all of the things described so that verse 3 says, so that then we would be called the planting of the Lord. It means the the vineyard of the Lord, the fruitful orchard or vineyard of the Lord, that God might be glorified, that people would look at our lives transformed by his grace and give him glory. Verse 4 then goes on to say, and they, those who are transformed, they are experiencing this, they shall build the old wastes and they shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the waste cities and the desolations of many generations. Who's the good news for? It's for the brokenhearted. That was verse one. It's for the captives, or week one. It's for the captives. That's week two. Next week, we'll see it's for all nations. Look at verse four. It is for waste cities, former desolations, those that are living in the desolations of many generations. I want you to see verse number four in the English standard version. You know, I'm a King James guy. I love the King James Bible, but I also am a big fan of the English standard version of scripture, the English standard translation or ESV. And I want you to look at that up on the screen. Uh, Here's how this verse reads in the ESV. They shall build up the ancient ruins. I like that word, the ancient ruins. They shall build up the ancient ruins and they shall raise up the former devastations and they shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. What the King James translates into the English word wastes, the more modern translations call that ruins. Now, all of us know what ruins are, right? I mean, if you've ever read any kind of an archaeological digest or if you've traveled to places where you tour ruins, we don't have many ruins here in the United States. We're not old enough. Our, our civilization or culture isn't really old enough to have ruins here. But, but, um, but when you travel many places in the world, you see ruins. And you know what ruins are. Uh, the ruins that you, that you would look at of an ancient city are simply the crumbled remains of an ancient civilization. The people are gone, but the evidence of how they lived and where they lived and what they did remains, and those ruins are there oftentimes buried underground to be excavated and to be studied. And so we can get a very real sense of how people lived a thousand years ago or 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago. Um, 
if we study the ruins of their civilization. I often wonder if the Lord tarried and 2,000 years from now, if people dug up the ruins of our civilization, what would they find? It'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Plastic bottles, probably, water bottles, they'd find. They'd find cameras with selfies, you know. But when, when we talk about ruins, we're, we're talking about what remains of an ancient uh, culture or civilization. You know, we go to the Holy Land every year, and uh, we see a lot of ruins in the Holy Land. We, we tour a lot of sites where, where there are uh, the ruins of ancient cities, and they're all impressive, but none of them are so awe-inspiring as the ruins of a, a place called Beit Shan. Beit Shan is near the, uh, what's at the southern tip of the, the uh, Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Armageddon. Uh, it's in the Jordan Valley. And um, this uh, was, in the time of Jesus 2,000 years ago, a thriving Roman city. Uh, the picture that was just up there was the Roman Cardo, the main street. Every Roman city had a columned Ro uh, main street, the Cardo. And the ruins there are impressive. There's the uh, remains, some of the remains of the ancient theater. And in the next picture, you can see some of the columns from that ancient city. Uh, some are standing. They've been re-erected there in the background. And in the foreground, uh, you can see some of those columns that have fallen. It's an incredible place to visit and get a sense of how people lived uh, in a Roman city 2,000 years ago. Ruins tell stories. And they tell stories of former glories, of how it used to be, of what that city once was like. And when you unearth a city like Beit Shan and you begin to stand the pillars up and rearrange and rebuild the walls and put it back together like it once was. You stand back and you're amazed at the, at the advanced way in which people lived millennia ago. Ruins tell the story of former glories. Ruins also tell the story of brokenness. Ruins tell us the stories of wars and conflicts and earthquakes and floods. And we're able to look at ruins and see not only how good things used to be, but also see the evidence of how horrible things went. And sometimes the ruins of an ancient city remain just that, ruins, Sometimes they're never rebuilt. Sometimes the weeds just grow over and they're just sort of buried in the sand and the ruins stay ruins. And in those cases, the ruins are the story. But look at the good news that Isaiah gives us in chapter 61 and verse number four. He says in that verse, ruins can be rebuilt. Former desolations, what has been desolate for many years, can be raised up. He says in verse 4, wasted cities can be repaired. Ruins don't have to remain in ruin. That's the message of verse number 4. And this is the good news that Isaiah was sent 
to proclaim. By the way, you remember the history of Isaiah, don't you? We learned it a couple of weeks ago. I said to you that Isaiah prophesied around the year 700 B.C. And so his time of ministry occurred more than a hundred years before the actual cities of of Israel, including Jerusalem, but all of the cities of Israel, about a hundred years before they were plundered by the Babylonians. So before the cities were ruined, he's prophesying that by God's grace, ruined cities can be restored. And his prophecy was fulfilled. His prophecy that they shall build the old waste. Do you see it in verse number four? They shall build the old waste and they shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the waste cities. This is a prophecy. He's prophesying it a hundred years before the cities are destroyed and that prophecy was in fact fulfilled. They did rebuild those waste cities. And it's recorded in the book of Ezra and the book of Haggai and the book of Nehemiah and other of the Old Testament uh, scribes tell us about the rebuilding that occurred after their captivity. Look at Ezra chapter 1 and verse 5. Then rose up the chief fathers. By the way, it's 200 years almost after Isaiah's time. Ezra says, the, then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and of Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and all them whose Spirit God had raised, and they went up to build the house of the Lord, which was in Jerusalem. Isaiah 61, 4, the waste shall be rebuilt, and the cities shall be repaired, and the, and the broken places shall be built. And 170, 200 years later, they came and they rebuilt. God kept his promise. He kept his word. But we also know that that promise, that prophecy was only temporarily and partially fulfilled in the rebuilding that occurred when Ezra led some builders back to Jerusalem. The full fulfillment of that promise, the complete fulfillment of a promise that Israel would be rebuilt and her cities would be rebuilt is reserved for a day yet future when the kingdom of God will come to the earth under the Messiah and truly all of Israel will be rebuilt in that day. This is spoken of in the book of Amos, chapter 9 and verse 11. Listen to these words. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, and I will close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. Isaiah said that these broken and, and ruined cities will be repaired, and that was partially done. Then they fell again. And And Amos and the other prophets, Ezekiel and others, said one day they will be built to the full. And by the way, we're living in the day when we're seeing the fulfillment of Amos chapter 9, verse number 11. We're we're seeing in the last 70 years Israel being rebuilt and it will be fully and completely restored one day when Jesus will come. The point is the cities were ruined and God promised through Isaiah that they would be rebuilt. But there's something really important that you should know. And it is that Jesus made it clear that this promise to rebuild ruined places is not simply about ruined cities. If you understand that, would you say amen? It's not just about stone and marble and 
houses and temples, but it's about people. In fact, hold your finger in Isaiah. We'll be back there in just a minute. Go all the way over to the book of Luke in the New Testament, not chapter 2. We'll be in Luke chapter 2 next week. Go to Luke chapter 4. I've mentioned this passage to you a couple of times over the last couple of weeks, but we haven't read it. Go to Luke chapter 4 and look with me, if you will, in verse number 16. In this passage, Jesus comes to Nazareth. And I want you to, I'm not going to tell you what it says. I just want to read it to you. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse number 16. On both campuses, if you're with me, shout amen. Amen. Watch this, verse 16. It came to pass, I'm sorry, and he came to Nazareth where he had been. This is Jesus, where he had grown up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Which chapter was Jesus reading? Isaiah 61. Of course, Jesus didn't go, well, chapter 61. I mean, they didn't have chapter and verse divisions then. But he unrolls the scroll to Isaiah 61. Jesus, in Luke 4.18, reads the very verse that we've been reading for the last three weeks. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, and to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord." And he closed the book and he gave it to the minister and he sat down and the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began to speak. This was the time when having read the scripture, now he's going to preach and explain what they've just read and he begins to speak and they all lean in to listen and he says in verse 21, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And everybody said, whoa. Jesus just took the promise of Isaiah's prophecy and applied it to himself. He just said what Isaiah was saying. He was speaking my words. I am the fulfillment. I am the one anointed to come and rebuild what has uh, been torn down, to heal what has been broken and bruised, to set free those that are captives. Verse number 22, and all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now, by the way, you should know that Jesus had already begun his earthly ministry at this point. He had already been performing miracles in Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee. His fame had already spread through the land. They knew the testimony of Jesus. They knew him because he grew up in their town. But they had been hearing word. Now this Jesus that grew up in our town, the son of Joseph, he's over there in Galilee performing miracles, walking on water and raising people from the dead. And so when he comes and sits in their synagogue and says, I'm the one Isaiah prophesied about, they're not denying that. They're not saying, no, you're not. They're saying, Joseph's son is the Messiah. Look at verse number 23. Jesus said to them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. What we have heard that you have done in Capernaum, do also here. They're not doubting his messianic fulfillment. They're not doubting his power, but they're looking for signs. They want to see the evidence. We've heard the stories now. Show us yourself. 
Do for us what we've heard you did in Capernaum. Verse 24, he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you a truth, many widows, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, when there was a great famine throughout all the land. But unto none of those widows was Elijah sent except unto Zarephath, unto a city of Sidon, unto the woman which was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of those lepers were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Do you see what Jesus just did? Sitting in the town of Nazareth, in the synagogue of the Jews in Nazareth, they say to him, show us your power. You've come to us, right? And he says, let me tell you something. I haven't just come to you. I've come to the Gentiles as well. And he gives two illustrations of the grace of God. One in the, city, in the life of the widow of Zarephath, a Gentile. And a second in the life of Naaman, the Syrian, a Gentile. And they were so furious that he would say God sent his grace to the Gentiles that they tried to kill Jesus there on the spot. Now here's the point. Jesus says in Luke chapter number 4, I came to fulfill Isaiah chapter 61, but it's not simply about rebuilding ruined cities. It's about rebuilding ruined lives. And it doesn't matter if it's a Jewish life or a Gentile life. It doesn't matter if it's a male life or a female life. Doesn't matter if it's a rich life or a poor life or a white collar life or a blue collar life or a black life or a white life or an Asian life. Doesn't matter. He says, I came to restore lives. If you believe it, would you shout amen? amen? Here's the principle you need to know God wants to repair ruined lives, not ruined cities. Not so interested in cities. But he's very interested in lives. Look at Isaiah again. Back in Isaiah chapter number 61. Look at what verse number 4 says. Isaiah chapter 61. Would you circle these words? If you have your pen in your hand, circle the word wastes. Verse number 4. They shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the desolations. They shall repair the waste Cities, two times you see the word waste. And then circle the word desolations. Two times you see the word desolations. If you have a more modern translation, you'll see the word ruins there for wastes. Circle that word, ruins. The word waste means that which has been laid waste. Or that which has been destroyed. What is barren or what's desolate. Some of us could say that describes some places in my life. You might say this is a pretty good description of my life. Barren, laid waste, desolate, broken. It's a wasteland. Maybe it's not your whole life, but we would say, well, it's this particular area or that relationship or that circumstance. Waste. And then the word desolations that you circled twice is the word which means to be astonished at the desolation. So in, on the one hand, waste means what is waste. Desolation means the shock at the waste that is before us. It's, so, so one is the reality. The other is the, is the shock or the feeling about 
that reality. The fact is, sometimes some people's lives are so broken, so desolate, so waste, that everybody that looks, including when they look in the mirror, everybody that looks just is astonished at the brokenness in that life. I want us to talk about this a bit today. Would you write it down if you're a note taker? We're going to talk for a minute about the tragedy of a ruined life. The tragedy of a ruined life. I mentioned earlier that ruins tell stories, stories of former glory and stories of tragedy. And certainly ruin, a ruined life more than a ruined city, is a tragedy. When verse number 4, Isaiah 61, 4, talks about the wastes, they shall build the old wastes and they shall raise up the waste to repair the waste cities. Um, the original Hebrew word uh, in the original text that is translated waste um, is the Hebrew word harev, harev. Now you may not care about that, that doesn't really mean anything to us, but the word harev transliterates in our English Bibles to the word which you've heard before, Horeb or Horeb. Or maybe you'll remember it in this way, Mount Horeb or the land of Horeb. You see this word Horeb for the first time in the book of Exodus. I'm going to turn there. I hope you'll go with me. Go all the way back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, and look in chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, and you'll see the word Horeb in verse number 1. Exodus 3 verse 1 says, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert, and he came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb, or Mount Horeb. Now, by the way, if you're interested in knowing it, and you should be, uh, Mount Horeb is also Mount Sinai. So this is the mountain where God gave the Ten Commandments. It is the mountain of God's law. In the land of Horeb, a land that is a wasteland, a barren desert, the word Hebrew word for waste is Horeb, in Horeb, it is called that because it is a barren, dry, moonscape kind of land. It is literally the loneliest part of the desert. And this is where Moses lands in Exodus chapter number 3. In the passage that we just turned to, Exodus 3, Moses is at the lowest point of his life. Have you ever said, I went, I got as low as I could get. Somebody said, look up, it can't get any worse. Has anybody ever said that to you? Cheer up, it can't get any worse. And you said, I cheered up and it got worse. That's where Moses is. He cheered up and it got worse. He has gone as low as he can go. Imagine this, Moses, whom we think of rightly and we should as the great deliverer of Israel, the great prophet of Israel, the great lawgiver uh, to Israel, the great mediator of the old covenant with Israel. We, we think of him in all of those terms, and we should, but that's not who he is in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, he is a fugitive from Egyptian justice. He's a murderer who is being sought by Pharaoh and the army 
of Egypt. He has fled for his life. The purpose that he thought his life would have has now evaporated as far as he is concerned. All of that is gone. His purpose is defeated. His family, his mother, his father, his brothers, his sisters, his cousins, his people, his family are far removed from him. And his only companions are the stinking sheep and goats which don't even belong to him. They're not even his herd. He's simply taking care of the herd of his father-in-law, the Midianite priest. Moses is in Horeb. That's what verse 1 says. But it's more than just he's in the location Horeb. Do you understand? He is in Horeb. His life is a barren wasteland. That's Exodus 3. Now, several months later, a number of months later, he's going to be back in this exact same location. And in that time, at that time, he's going to have a bunch of people with him. They are the delivered Israelite people whom he has now led out of Egypt. Go to Exodus 17. Let me show it to you. Number of months pass. He ends up back down in Egypt. It says to Pharaoh, let my people go. You know the story. You've seen it uh, Uh, Every Easter on TV, if you haven't read it, your Bible, the Ten Commandments. He leads them out of Egypt. He brings them right back to the same place, to Horeb, Mount Horeb, this this dry, barren wasteland. Look at Exodus, uh, Exodus 17 and verse number one. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord. And they pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water there for them to drink. Wherefore, the people did chide with Moses. The word chide in the King James means they accused Moses. They demanded of Moses. Verse 2, give us water to drink. And Moses said unto them, why are you accusing me? Why are you chiding with me? Why are you tempting the Lord? Why do you not trust the Lord? By the way, this is after they've seen the miracle of the plagues. This is after... They've seen the miracle of the manna. This is after they've crossed the Red Sea. He says, why do you not trust God? There's no water. I know there's no water. But why are you demanding of me? God will give you water. Trust him. And the people, verse number three, thirsted for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Verse number four, and Moses cried to the Lord and said, what shall I do with these people? They're going to kill me. And the Lord said to Moses, go on, get in front of the people. Take with thee the elders of Israel and take your rod in your hand wherewith you smote the river and take it in your hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in, where does verse six say they are? Horeb. And same place, same place he was in Exodus chapter 3, right there at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. In that barren wasteland, the people are in a barren wasteland. He says, stand there in the rock and you shall smite the rock and there shall come water out of it. And the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of that place Massah and Meribah 
because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord even among us? So in Exodus 3, Moses, if y'all are with me, say amen. amen. Now watch. In Exodus 3, Moses is in Horeb. And he's at the lowest point in his life. In Exodus 17, he's back in Horeb. He has all of the Israelites with him. And they are angry with God. Why did you bring us here? Why did you do this? Why did you let this happen? We were doing fine down in Egypt and you let us out. Why did you lead us out? Just so you could bring us out here in the wilderness and have us and our children and our cattle die of thirst? They believe God has been unfair to them. They believe God is uncaring, uninterested, disinterested in their situation. And they're bitter toward God. And they're bitter toward his servant. That's Exodus 17. There's one other telling event that happens in this location. Turn from Exodus 17 to Exodus 32, please. Same location. In Exodus 32, listen to what the Bible says in verse number 1. I should tell you that in Exodus 32, Moses has gone up to the top of Mount Horeb, up to the top of Mount Sinai. He's there with God. Uh, getting the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. And they don't know when he's going to come back down or what's happened to him up there. So listen to verse 1 of Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Get up, make us gods, little g, idols, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and of your sons and of your daughters and bring them to me. And all the people broke off their golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and he melted them down and fashioned it with a graving tool After he had made it into a molten calf, Aaron took all of that gold, formed a golden calf, which was an Egyptian idol, an Egyptian god. And they said, verse number four, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Somebody ought to say, what are you talking about? God delivered them by his mighty hand. Now, just because they haven't seen Moses in a few days, they're forming a God and saying it was this golden calf that brought us up. The children of Israel in Horeb are idolatrous. They're camped at the base of Mount Horeb. Moses is up on the mountain and the people demand that Moses or that Aaron rather make them an idol. Here's the point of those three illustrations. It is that our lives are headed for ruin. Our lives are headed for ruin when we get ahead of God's plan and we make sinful choices demanding our way in our time frame like Moses did. Exodus chapter 3 tells that story. Our lives are headed for ruin when we are angry with God, as the Israelites were. When we're bitter with God because we don't like the way our lives have turned out and we thought things would be different and it's God's fault. And we get bitter. 
And that bitterness leads to ruin, as it did for the Israelites in Exodus 17. And our lives are headed for ruin when, our, when we're so full of idolatry. We're so impatient for God's provision and guidance that we will seek pleasure and, and leadership and help from anything if God doesn't operate on our time. You see, when, our, when we make these same mistakes, our lives become a ruined horrible a ruined wasteland, a barren ground like the ground where Moses and the children of Israel found themselves. Our lives are Horeb, Horeb in that time. Now, if you're listening, I want you to shout amen. amen. Does it describe your life at all? Or the life of anyone that you know? Ahead of God, sinful choices, running on their own, bitter with God, upset with God idolatrous and they're living in the results, the horrib of those sinful choices. Well, I said that we ought to start with good news and perhaps I've started with the bad news today. But can we talk about the good news? And that is that the grace of God, would you write it down, the grace of God restores ruined lives and everybody ought to shout amen. amen. Praise God. If these descriptions of Horeb describe your life in any way know this that God is gracious Isaiah 61 talks about the good news the grace of God verse 4 of 61 that will restore broken and wasted lives I'm back in Isaiah 64 verse number 1 I had you circle the word wastes and desolations I want you to circle again look at the word build in verse 4 circle the word build and the word raise up and the word repair these are good news words that God takes wastelands tragic circumstances lives that are broken and he builds them he restores them he repairs them I have good news for you today. God, by his grace, sent Jesus to offer you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, he sent Jesus to offer you a new beginning. To take the ashes of your horeb, the ashes of your anger, the ashes of your isolation, the ashes of your idolatry, and to repair and restore that. Do you know that God gave Moses, when he was at the lowest point in his life, by his own choosing, by his own doing, when he made such horrible decisions and now he was running for his life and he's on the backside of the desert in Horeb, his life is Horeb, God met him there and gave him his purpose. What he thought was lost, God gave him. God spoke to him out of a burning bush. And he said, I want you to go back down where you came from. Go face what you've done. Go face the Pharaoh that you're running from and tell him that I sent you to lead my people out. And Moses was scared to death, but he had the faith to believe that God could give him a fresh start. And he did. In Exodus 17, the Israelite people are in Horeb. They're in a dry, barren desert land. They have no water to drink. They're upset and bitter with God because they think he's brought them out there to die. They're, they're tempting God and accusing Moses. In Exodus 17, verse number 6, God said to Moses, Go stand by the rock, take your rod, hit the rock, and I will send forth water out of the rock. God gave them water. He gave them refreshment in their horeb. 
And in Exodus chapter number 32 and 33, God gave Israel a new heart of worship. There they are, gathered around, dancing in this orgy of idolatry around a golden calf. And God came into the midst and Moses said, who's on the Lord's side? And they repented and God gave them a new heart to worship God. I'm simply telling you, no matter what put you in your Horeb, God has a new beginning, a fresh start, and a new life for you. It's grace that he offers us. When he says in verse number four of Isaiah 61, they shall build the old wastes and raise up the former desolations and repair the waste cities and the desolations of many generations. It's not just about cities. In fact, it's not really about cities at all. It's about lives. It's about your life and my life. One final thing you should know in this passage, and it is that we should never forget that our former ruins are scars that tell the story of God's grace. Some of you may be thinking, Pastor, I can't go back. I can't undo what I've done. I am in Horeb. I am in my wasteland. I have created this wasteland that I'm sitting in. I can't go back. I can't undo what I've done. I don't get a mulligan on this. I, I'm stuck here. It's never going to change. And I need you to know something. You can't undo what you've done. And you can't erase the scars. But do you remember what I said at the beginning? Scars tell a story. And the scars tell the story whether you accept God's grace or not. If you don't accept God's grace and allow him to give you a new beginning, the scars, the ruins are going to remain. They're going to still be there. But the difference is the, the scars will always be the story. The ruin will just be the story of ruin. And that's all it will ever be. But if you will receive the fresh start, if you will receive the new purpose, if you will receive the grace to bring you out of your bitterness and your brokenness and your, and your sinfulness and, your, and the wasteland that's been created, if you will receive his grace, he will repair, verse number four. He will build up. He will restore the wastes and he will build a beautiful new life. And the scars will still be there, but they won't be the story. The scars will tell the story of God's graciousness and his faithfulness and his goodness. And the scars will be a constant reminder to you and a permanent declaration to everyone that knows your life that God is merciful, God is gracious, and he keeps his promises to his people. Do you remember in the beginning, I showed you some pictures from Beit Shan in Israel, just ruins, right? Just piles of rubble and kind of re-erected columns. and Beautiful place to be sure, but it's more ruinous than anything. Well, there's one other picture I want to show you. We'll put up on the screen. Look at it. It, it, is, it is a picture of the ruins, but you can't see it too much. But up on the top of the hill, do you see that? You know what that is on the top of the hill? That's modern Beit Shan. Same city, same name. 
Beit Shean today is a thriving modern city. It's teeming with people. It has children in the streets. It has schools. It has, it has businesses. It, it's full of commerce. It's full of life. And if you go to Beit Shan today, the ruins in the valley are just a reminder that something was destroyed there one time, but nobody lives there. Everybody lives in the new city. And the ruins remind them that God keeps his promises. They shall repair the waste cities. They shall restore the desolations. They shall build up the wastes. Don't live in the ruins. There's a beautiful new city God wants to build for you in your life. Let's pray together.